Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bible and turn to John chapter 1 for the reading of this morning's scripture. We will be reading John 1, 1 through 18. And the word of the Lord reads, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Gresham Mansion once wrote, When the Bible says that Christ is God, it does not ask us to forget a single thing that it has said about the stupendous majesty of God. No, it asks us to remember every one of those things in order that we may apply them all to Jesus Christ. So today what we're going to do is we're going to change some things up a little bit uh, because we're going to take a short break uh, from our series on the letter to the Romans titled The Power of the Gospel. And, And the reason for that is this is a good opportunity for us to take a moment and slow down a bit and spend some time and reflect on something that is essential to our faith and and foundational to the gospel itself. And that is the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. Or simply put, answering the question, who is Jesus? Remember Paul said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to save those who believe And and that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. In fact, Paul said that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And then Paul then expresses the glorious simplicity of the gospel and says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what is the name of the Lord? His name is is Jesus Christ. Peter in Acts chapter 4 has this to say. He says, This Jesus is the stone that, you re- that, that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Central to the gospel Central to our faith is our understanding of who Jesus is. In fact, Jesus is the direct object of our faith. He is the one that we are leaning on. He is the one that we're holding on to. In Him is life, right? It is His life, death, and resurrection that we must place our hope in. Again, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. 
In John chapter 3, probably one of the most, probably the most famous verse in, in the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should be, should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. John further says, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The Scriptures make it clear that Christ is the central object of our faith. We must believe in Him. We must trust Him. In Him. Salvation is not by our works. Salvation is not by our obedience to the law. It's not by our religiousness or our nationality or ethnicity or anything else that we can bring to the table. Salvation, as we have said over and over again, and we will say again and again until Christ returns, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so He is our anchor. He is the object of our hope and faith. He is the central figure of our entire lives. He is the foundation of the gospel itself. That's why we call it the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is all 100% about Him. And because of that, we must know and we must understand who He is, because we must know Him personally and intimately. You see, salvation is made available to us by Christ because He is the one who bridges the gap between God and man. This is the place where we come back to and we have to understand that all of mankind was created in the image of God. This is That's why you are the way that you are. That's why you were not like the, the rest of the, the creation. That's why we're not animals. We were created unique in the image of God for a special relationship with God. You were created to be in His presence. You were created to be near Him. You were created to worship Him. But that image was distorted and that relationship was destroyed because man fell into sin. And as a result, mankind was cast out of the garden and out of the presence of God himself. Man and God were separated. The greatest tragedy that befall all of humanity, man and God became separated. As we, we sing in one of our songs, how great the chasm that lay between us, how high the mountain that we cannot climb the fellowship between God and man was broken because of sin, and this was reflected even in the Jewish faith all the way into the first century. Even the temple itself bore witness to this separation because there was a barrier between the holy place and the temple where men could go and the most holy place where God's presence resided. Even there was a, a symbol that you can only get so close to God. Even when people would come there to the temple to worship and to be near him, there was still an obvious architectural feature that demonstrated that they were still separated from God. God and man were not together. Mankind has been estranged and there is a vast chasm between them. And religiousness and obedience to the law and tradition and the blood of bulls and goats couldn't bring God and man together. But Jesus came into the world to bridge that very gap. He came so that we might be brought back into the presence of God. In fact, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 1, but I don't want to go to verse 1 yet. I want you to go all the way to verse 43. There's a little strange story in here that I think that, that illustrates what, why Jesus came. In verse 43, what we find is Jesus is calling his very first disciples, and it reads, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, a city of Andrew, of Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of 
whom Moses in the law and, the also, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed of whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. The thing you need to realize is right before this, Jesus didn't see him literally. He saw him because of his omniscience. Right? Nathanael, realizing this, answered him and said, You, said to you, said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And then he said to him, and hear this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, that is a very strange expression. It's a very strange thing to say, at least for, from our 21st century perspective. Angels and will be ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This vision of angels climbing up and down on Jesus seems like a very weird thing for him to say. And it's easy for us to look past this and move on, except this statement is actually meant to point us back to the Old Testament. Because Jesus isn't making a cryptic statement. What he's, what he's doing is he's pointing the disciples all the way back to Genesis chapter 28. So while you have your Bibles out, just turn with me all the way to the front of the book to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis is obviously at the front of the Bible. Genesis chapter 8, we're going to begin looking in verse 10. And it reads, Jacob left Beersheba and he went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the, the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top it reached, of it reached to heaven, and behold, angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jacob, was, whose name was later changed to Israel by God, because he was the father of that nation, he was on his way to his uncle's house, fleeing from his, his brother. He had a dream, and in that dream, he had a vision of a great ladder that spanned the gulf between heaven and earth a ladder that connected the realm of God with the realm of man. And, and Jesus, referring to this vision, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I am that ladder. I am the instrument that connects that connects heaven and earth. I am the, the, the one that brings heaven and earth together. I am the one who reconciles God to man. That right there is why he's the object of our faith. He is the one and the only one that can redeem us back to God. As Paul says, Christ came into the world to save sinners. Christ is the one who bridges the chasm that lays between us and our Creator. And so Jesus is central to our faith, and it's because of that we must know and understand who He is. We must know Him personally and intimately, not just intellectually. We must not just know about Him. We must know Him personally. Now, the reason why this is important and bears taking the time to talk about it is because who Jesus is in His character and His nature, that matters as you've heard me say before many times, and I'll say again many times until the Lord comes home, your theology matters. What you know about God, what you understand about God, that is critical. It matters. And that applies to Christ. Who Christ is and what makes Him who He is is essential to your faith. Because the truth is, 
the world is filled full of people who will say the words, I believe in Jesus. There are people all around us who will say, I confess Jesus. I trust in Jesus. I love Jesus. The world is filled full of people who confess that they believe in Jesus, who then would turn around and deny about Jesus the very things that the word of God would say are true of him. This is more frequent and common than you possibly can imagine. There are people who deny the very things that make him who he is. And what's worse is there are people, there are people who will accept as brothers and sisters in Christ those people who deny the very things that make Christ Christ. And, and, and I've heard it with my own ears. I've heard people say, well, well, they say that they believe in Jesus. They say they trust in Jesus, so they must be believers. Right? And my response is, what Jesus? Because the Jesus they say they believe in has nothing to do with what is found in the Scriptures or the Word of God. And I understand, right? Please, I want you to hear me. I am all in favor of, of unity, I believe that we are to be unified with the larger body of Christ. I believe there's way too much division in the church at large. Right? I believe that we ought to have more community and I mean uh, unity in our community and world. In fact, we're we're going to have a combined worship night as we talked about this coming Saturday in the Boron High NPR. And we're going to come together with the Boron Bible Church and the Assembly of God and we're going to worship uh, with the community as one big family of God, right? And, and, and one of those objectives of this worship night is, to, is for the community to see the unity that, that God has among the believers in Boron. We want to demonstrate this unity among the churches because we are unified in our common faith in Christ because we worship the same Jesus. And we have all agreed and we are all unified on the gospel. We are unified on what it means to be saved, and we're unified in the identity of the person of Christ. We agree also that there are people who say that they believe in Jesus that we can't be unified with because they believe in someone named Jesus who is different than the ones from the Scriptures. In fact, our Muslim friends will say, I believe in Jesus. Our Muslim friends will say, yes, Jesus was born of a virgin. Our Muslim friends will agree that Jesus was, was from God and a prophet of God. They will agree that Jesus did miracles. They will even agree that he came in humility and was marked by faithfulness. And so on the surface, it would sound like we have a lot in common with those of the Muslim faith. The only problem is they don't believe that Jesus actually died on the cross at all. They believe that someone that looked like him died in his place. So he didn't die for our sins, right? They don't believe that Jesus was the unique son of God. They don't believe in his divinity. And they certainly don't believe that he was resurrected from the dead. And so the truth is then we do not believe in the same Christ. And because of that, they are still in their sins and they are still apart from God. As sincere as they may be, as, as, as loving as they may be. Another example of those who practice that is, is, is those who practice a oneness faith. There's a number of groups of people who have a theology that denies the triune nature of God. And because of that, they, they believe that Jesus is God, which is true, but they believe that He is God the Father, that He is simultaneously God the Son, and that He is simultaneously God the Holy Spirit. They deny that God exists in three persons, which leads to a false and heretical understanding of Christ. And that means they worship a Jesus that can't save. Because salvation is the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we sang about this morning. And there are liberal Christians who deny the supernatural aspects of Christ and they focus on only His humanity and say that Jesus was simply an example of a perfect human being. And Jesus is simply an expression of God's love for the world. And those things are true, but they're not the only things that are true about Jesus. If you deny Jesus' divinity and His miraculous works, right, all you have is an example to follow but you don't have a Savior who can rescue you. 
And there are people who believe that Jesus is a powerful being, that, 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 that He created all other things, but He Himself was a created being, a powerful archangel. That Jesus was a creature who came into existence in time and space. But the problem is created beings cannot bridge the gap between God and man. Others we know and love believe that Jesus is literally a spirit baby of God the Father, like the rest of us, that we are all just like Him, and that somehow Jesus, by His own efforts and obedience, earned the right to become a God separate from God the Father. And, and He's an example to us because, because we too then somehow can attain Godhood in our own right if we're faithful enough to, to obey the religion. And what makes it worse is that many of these groups will have names like Jesus Christ even in the, the name of their church. And many of them will have the same kind of vocabulary as us. They will say that things like Jesus is the Savior or God is the, the Father. And they will use words like deacons and elders and church and baptism. And on the surface, it would seem like that we have a lot in common. And a lot of people will say, well, they... They believe in Jesus like we believe in Jesus, so they must be Christians just like us. But the fact is, we don't mean the same thing when we use the same words. They're not the same as us. They believe in something and someone completely different. And in fact, let me just give you an example. I think that I think will illustrate this point. If I were talking to someone about my good friend and fellow pastor, Hugh Bates, and someone said to me, hey, I know you. But then they began to describe to me a man who is six foot eight, 365 pounds with long flowing black hair and tattoos all over his arms. <laughs> it would be obvious to everyone that we're not talking about the same person. I mean, they might know a man named Hugh Bates, but it's not the Hugh Bates that I know. You understand? Just because someone says they believe in someone named Jesus doesn't mean that they're part of the family of God. Hugh wishes he was six foot eight, you know. But <laughs> I don't know about the tattoos, but that'll be between him and Anne. So. But the fact is, just because someone says that they, they follow somebody named Jesus doesn't mean they're part of God's family. Who Jesus is, who he is matters. What you believe about him is essential to your faith. If you are to be saved, your faith must rest on the Christ that is revealed from the Scriptures, not from feelings, not from what the world says, not from tradition, from what the Scriptures say. Who Jesus is is foundational to the gospel and your salvation. And that is why we're going to take a little time away from our series in Rome, in, in Romans, to explore the theology of Christ and, and really just get to know the Jesus that is revealed to us by the Word of God. Now, that being said, this series is meant to be helpful to everyone. To those who are newer to the Christian faith, this series is meant to help you to come to, to get a, a good foundational handle on who Christ is. We want to help you to wrap your head around His nature and His character. We want to help you to grow in your understanding so that you draw nearer to Him and grow in your confidence that you belong to Him. For those who have been Christians for a while, this short series is meant to reinforce the things that you already know about Christ and to help you to grow deeper in your understanding of who Jesus is and help you to be able to defend your faith in light of so many false ideas around us. We want to help you to become an apologist and an evangelist so that you can point people to the true Christ. And then for those of you who are veterans of the faith, this series is intended to remind you of the glorious nature of Christ and, and, and to remind you of what God has done for you in Christ. And hopefully this series will help you to worship Him even more and draw closer to Him still. And so with that, turn with me to John chapter 1 and we'll begin reading in verse 1. <clears throat> And John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The first thing that we have to see is what's obvious right here. John opens up with the expression with the words, in the beginning. And John doesn't do this accidentally. He does it on purpose. This is actually a masterfully written letter. And everything that John writes, he does so for a purpose. And that purpose, when he writes the words in the beginning, he wants your mind to immediately go right back to Genesis chapter 1. By the way, this entire gospel of John is written with Genesis in mind. It would be helpful to read John, all of it, along with Genesis. You will see that John draws heavily from Genesis. But from the start, John wants us to think right to the beginning of the, the Scriptures, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John uses the expression in the beginning to help us and his audience to know, you know that he is talking about the same moment and the same God that is found in Genesis 1.1. In fact, this is further emphasized when John makes it clear that all things were created through the Word. And so John is using the beginning of Genesis as context. right? And he, and he says, in the beginning. Now, in Genesis, we see that in the beginning, before anything was made before anything existed, there was God. Notice that's what it says. In the beginning, God, right? God preceded everything else. Prior to all of creation, God existed because He is eternal. He is outside of time. Well, in that context, John writes, in the beginning was the Word, the Word existed before anything was created, which means the Word, like God in Genesis, is what? Eternal. It is eternal. That's the point that John is making. The Word, like God, is eternal. It existed before creation. Now, we know that the Word is a reference to Jesus because in verse 14 of, of chapter 1 in John... John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We know that's Jesus. And so the Word, which is, is from the Father, is Christ. He existed in the beginning, which means Jesus, the Word, is eternal, which means Jesus didn't come into being in time and space. He was existent before anything was made. In fact, John declares this, 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 this emphatically. He says, look at this, all things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. John emphatically declares that all created things, all things that have ever been created, were made through Christ. And then he says, all things. When he says that, it means literally that, all things. That means the dirt, that means the flowers, the earth, the sky, the stars, the people, the planets, the solar system, the universe, the angels, the heavens, all things, anything that's ever been created in any point in history. In fact, Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the entire cosmos, anything that has been created. It was all created by the Word. And this means two very important things to us. One, because all created things were created through Jesus, Jesus himself is uncreated. Which means he isn't some archangel that was created in time and space and then created everything else. Jesus is uncreated. He existed prior to creation. Nothing brought him into existence. He is eternal. The second thing it means is He is the Creator of all things. If all things were created through Him, then He Himself is known as the Creator of all things. All things were created through Him and nothing was made without Him. The Word, or Christ, is the Creator of the heavens and the earth. The Jesus that we worship is the Creator of the heavens and the earth. Do not leave here today without settling that in your mind which then leads us to an important, inescapable conclusion. Because what kind of being is eternal, uncreated, creator of all things? 
there's only one being that qualifies, and that is God Himself. God is the eternal, uncreated creator. And that is what Genesis says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when John, he leverages this, this creation story and that understanding, and he says, in the beginning was the word, and then says the word was with God and the word was God. Just let that soak in for a minute. And, and, I, and believe me, there are a few heretical groups that will try to say, well, the Greek doesn't mean that way. I'm just going to tell you right now, the vast majority of scholarship renders it exactly that way. The word was God. Even people who are skeptical of Christ, even those who say they don't believe in Jesus will say that's what it renders. Jesus, the word was God. Jesus is, very, Jesus is God. And the Greek verb here that's used for was doesn't have a sense of time with it. In fact, the word that's used here for was is the same word that Jesus will use later when he says, before Abraham was, I am. You see, the verb in the Greek is timeless, meaning that the word was eternally God and is still God even now. Now, I know that's a lot to, to soak in, in in one verse, and believe me, I could spend several sermons on this one verse and unpack and blow your mind how the Greek works. But, but this is essential to our understanding of the gospel. Jesus is not some created being. He is not some prophet that God sent into the world. He is not just some example of humanity. You know, he is, he is certainly not just some spirit baby that was born in heaven and then became, you know, God by his own efforts. Jesus what Paul, what John is communicating is Jesus is, has always been, and will always be the very God we worship. He is eternal and the uncreated creator. He is God in all his glory and all of his fullness, which means he is completely holy, which means he is completely different from us, and he is completely righteous and just and loving and omniscient and all-knowing and all-powerful and ever-present. Jesus is the eternal and everlasting God. And the thing that we need to realize and we just need to just accept, as much as we love everyone around us, we want them to be part of the family of God, we have to stand on this truth. Anyone who denies the divinity of Christ, anyone who denies that Jesus is God, does not know Christ. Anyone who says that Jesus is not God is not of the faith. They don't know Jesus. And I want to say that again. Anyone who says that Jesus is not God is not of the faith. He's not a believer. He is not a Christian. They are not part of the family of God. They are not in the kingdom. They are lost like the rest of the world. It doesn't matter what kind of religious experience that, that person might have had. We live in a world right now that values personal experience over everything else. But our faith is not based on personal experience. Our faith is based on the word of God and the truthfulness of God's promises. It doesn't matter if they've had visions of angels or, or God coming to them. It doesn't matter what their, their, their favorite pastor on YouTube says. Anyone who denies Christ as God, Christ is not in them and they're still in their sins because the word of God declares that Jesus is God. And it's not just one verse in John chapter one. In fact, look at me to, to John chapter one, verse 18. John writes, no one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Wait a minute. God and then the only God who is at the Father's side. He's talking about the Father and the Son here. Right? He has made him known. Again, John calls Jesus God. And I want you to understand it's not just one chapter either. The divinity of Christ is the theme of the entire book of John. In fact, there are a lot of people who want to just throw out the gospel of John as non-canonical because it clearly demonstrates that Jesus is God. In John chapter 8, Jesus declares he himself to be the great I am a name that God calls himself in Exodus. In John chapter 18, Jesus again says, I am, and makes that declaration. And the soldiers who came out to arrest him were forced down to the ground by his sovereign power. And then in John chapter 20, Thomas, 
seeing the risen Christ with his own eyes, declares, my Lord and my God. And guess what Jesus didn't do? He didn't correct him or rebuke him. But it's not just the book of John either. This is a truth that's highlighted throughout and reinforced throughout all of the scriptures. In Colossians uh, 2 verse 9 we read, For in Him, Jesus, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Right? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he, He, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of His power. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's unambiguous. Even the Old Testament points to this truth. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, around Christmas time, we always look to this scripture here. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The fact that Jesus is God, right, and as God, he is also the author of life. In, in verse 4, John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And I think that this seems obvious because Jesus is the creator of all things, but but this is important for us to really think about because what do we know to be true about life? That life must come from life. You can't get life from things that are dead. One of the truths that we hold on to in a world that embraces materialism and that embraces evolution and embraces some weird kind of accidental creation of the universe that somehow turned into what it is today, what we hold on to is the truth that life can't come from non-life. It never has. Right? There, we, we, we believe two truths, right? Nothing can't come, I mean, something can't come from nothing, and that life can't come from non-life. These are two truths that materialists and evolutionists cannot overcome. They can say what they want to say, but these are two things that they can't overcome. Life must come from life. Just as the universe had to have a beginning and a cause because it can't create itself, all life must come from something that lives. And Jesus is the true living God, and as such, is the author of all life. You are alive today because of the life that's in Him. And not only did He create the inanimate dirt that we walk on, He created mankind and breathed life into Him. Jesus is the author of life, and again, that proves that He is God Himself. And so we can confidently declare the truth, an essential truth about Christ is His divinity, We can confidently say that He is fully God. But we also must make a very important distinction. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he says, He was in the beginning with God. Notice there is a distinction. It's clear that there is a distinction. Jesus is God and he is also with God. And this expression that, that, that says that he was with God from the Greek actually expresses intimacy. It's not that they were just with each other. There is an intimacy there that literally means that they were face-to-face with one another. There is a face-to-face relationship. He was with God face-to-face. In this chapter, we discover the nature of that relationship. How does that relationship work? Well, it says... A little bit later, we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And then later on it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And what we see from this short text then is that there is a Father and a Son relationship in God. In the beginning was the Word, or the Son, and He was with God, the Father. And so John makes it clear that Jesus is God, but but as God, Jesus is still distinct from the Father. There is a distinction. Jesus 
is not the Father. Because he is, he is in an intimate relationship with the Father. He is in a face-to-face relationship with Him. And we see that relationship, by the way, throughout the entire New Testament. In the Gospels, we see Jesus continually praying again and again to the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked the Father to let the cup pass from Him. As He knew He was going to experience the Father's wrath, He says, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Right On the cross, Jesus prays, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit when He died. We see that there is a a relationship there. Jesus prays to him, and we see the Father speaking to Jesus. We see him speaking to him at his baptism. We also see him speaking to him again at the transfiguration. There is a clear distinction between Jesus and the Father. They are not the same person. They are both God. Right? Jesus is God, but is distinct from the Father because he himself is the Son of God. And again, over and over, the Scriptures bear witness to that fact. What does it call Jesus? The Son of Man and the Son of God. And so the Son existed eternally in in a face-to-face relationship with the Father. Now, it's important for us to note, as we just kind of like travel on this vein here, that Jesus is also not the Holy Spirit. In the Scriptures, we see the Holy Spirit is, is also God, but distinct from Christ and also distinct from the Father. At Jesus' baptism, we see them all there. The Holy Spirit descends upon Christ to empower Him in His humanity, and then the Father speaks of being pleased with His Son. There is a clear distinction between all three. Jesus also, later on, will promise to, to send the Holy Spirit after He leaves. And so the Holy Spirit, like the Father and like Christ, are all God and they live eternally in community together, but they are distinct in persons. Christ is not the Father or the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. That is why we say to those that we evangelize that God exists, there is one God that exists in three persons. This is why what we refer to as the Trinity. In fact, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith puts it this way, the Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. And then it goes on to say, this divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, Father, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without the essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither is He begotten or proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without... without uh, and All three are infinite and without being, uh, beginning and are therefore only one God who is, who is not to be divided in nature or being, yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and relations. Christ is fully God, but He is distinct from the Father and the Spirit. In fact, we say of Him that He is the second member of the Trinity. That's how we refer to Him. Again, the London Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 8 says this, The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with Him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything He has made. This is actually a very good summary of what we've covered so far. In fact, I would encourage you, if you haven't picked up a copy of the the London Baptist Confession of Faith, um, it's a very helpful guide Right? But Jesus is God in the second member of the Trinity, which then, which again is essential to our faith. Those who are truly in Christ confess the triune nature of God. God is one in essence, three in persons. And this right here is the overwhelming testimony of the Scriptures. In fact, we don't believe the Trinity because it's easy to understand, right? We believe the Trinity because that's exactly how God reveals Himself in His Word, despite the fact that it's hard for us to wrap our heads around. And just as those who deny God's divinity 
are not of the faith, neither those who deny the Trinity. Even those who, who will say, yes, Jesus is God, if they deny the distinction between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are outside of, of the Orthodox faith. You see, among the truths that unite us with the Borom Bible Church and the Assembly of God is we confess these same truths. We confess that God is triune and Christ is God the Son. All of us, we have all sat down and talked about these things. We are united in these essential truths of our faith. And all of those who trust in Christ affirm these things. Now, why is it such a big deal that Jesus is God? Why is it so important to us? Well, John explains that. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the reason why it's important is because if we're to be saved, God Himself had to come into the world to save us. God Himself had to come redeem us. This is not something He could send an errand boy to do. The thing that we need to understand is our sin that we all have participated in is so great and so horrific that there is nothing that we as humans can do to save ourselves. It's impossible. That's the whole point of the gospel. Even if we wanted to save ourselves, we don't have the ability. And we don't have the ability to change our own hearts. We don't have the ability to do it. It, it doesn't happen on, our, on its own. We don't have the ability to atone for our own sin. We don't even have the ability. Think about this. We don't even have the ability, even being saved, to stop sinning. Because if you figured that one out, you better let me know. Right? Even when we desperately want to, even when we cry out to the Lord, I don't want to do stupid things anymore, we still find that we do stupid things. Man is broken and depraved and he is hopeless on his own. We cannot save ourselves and we cannot save each other. And so unless God does something for us, we are hopelessly lost, which is, by the way is what we deserve. But God in His grace... God the Father sent God the Son into the world on a rescue mission. He came to save us. God Himself came to rescue us from, from our sin and His wrath. But understand, it's not like that God could just come to the earth and say, okay, here I am, I forgive you. Just believe in me and you'll be saved. See, the problem with that is our sin would still remain. You see, our problem isn't that we're just sinners. Our problem is God is good. Paul Washer says that's the scariest truth in all of the Bible, that God is good. And people will ask him, well, why is that a problem? Because you're not. <laughs> right? That's God is good and we're not. Our problem is God is holy, righteous, and just and cannot abide sinners which means sin and wrongdoing must be held accountable, otherwise He's not God. Which means sinners must be judged and punished for their sin. If God is true to His own nature, He cannot simply dismiss our sins and sweep it under the rug. Sin must be dealt with. And so Christ the Son came into the world, came to the earth to be one of us. That's why the expression... And the word became flesh. That expression ought to make us shout for joy. Because Jesus, fully God, came in the world and took on a full, real human nature to become one of us. And he did that so that he and his humanity could do for us all of the things that we can't do for ourselves. Jesus, fully God, became fully man. And he lived among us. Now, why is that important? Well, for two, two things. First, our sins must be atoned for. Someone has to pay the penalty. Someone has to pay the price. The debt must be settled because God is just. Sin cannot be set free. Sin must be punished. Justice must be done. But the thing is, not just anyone can do that. 
Not just anyone can die for someone else's behalf. I can't die to pay for the sins of my children as desperately as I would want to do so. Right? Why? Because I have my own sin to deal with. As a parent, I would suspect that most of you or all of you would gladly give your life to spare your children hell. That you would die in their place if you could. But you can't because of your own sin. The person who pays the penalty for someone else must also not have his own debt. The point is only a sinless person can take the sins of someone else so they can go free. Jesus came to be the spotless, sinless lamb to take away the sins of the world, as John says. He came to die for our sins. Secondly, what is required for fellowship with God is not just simply being free of sin. What's required is actual obedience. We must actively, actually be righteous. Again, this goes back to Genesis. In Genesis, mankind was created free from sin and didn't, and, and he and he didn't he, he was free from sin, right? But he had to also live in fellowship with God by being obedient. God gave him a command to obey. And the command was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. What was required was not simply Adam be sinless. He had to be obedient. And again, the confession puts it very clearly. In chapter 6 it reads, God created humanity upright and perfect, and He, and he gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if He kept it or obeyed it, but threatened death if He broke it. By the way, this is the covenant of works. God created the covenant of works between Him and man, and the promise was obedience leads to life and disobedience leads to death. And as we know, Adam like all of humanity, failed to keep it. He failed to remain obedient to God's law, and because that was cut off, and like Adam, we have all failed. And without this righteous obedience, no one can be in fellowship with God. And so not only did Jesus have to die for our sins, He had to live for our righteousness. What that means is Jesus couldn't just show up put on a human body and go, ta-da, I died for your sins. He had to actually come and become one of us and to live for us. He had to come and walk in our shoes, which means he was born into the world like the rest of us, except that he was born of a virgin. And he had to live in his humanity a perfect, sinless life, perfectly obeying the covenant of works, keeping also the law of Moses. He had to humanly satisfy all that was ever required of us. He had to earn a righteous standing with God for us. And in the process, he had to face the pain that we face and our shortcomings and limitations. He experienced in his human body hunger and thirst and exhaustion. He also experienced loneliness and even betrayal. He has been tried and tempted like the rest of us. In fact, Paul says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us in order to walk in our shoes and to suffer alongside us and to suffer for us. God came into the world and took on a human nature in order to do for us the things that we couldn't do for ourselves. God the Son became a man so that He could live the perfect life that we were required to live, but couldn't, and then to die to pay for our sins that we could never pay for, to satisfy God's wrath and justice that we rightly deserve. And the promise is, as John says, all who receive Him who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. Jesus, the Word, fully God, fully man, came into the world on a rescue mission to bridge the gap between God and us. And after living for our righteousness, He willingly died for our sins. And when that happened, the veil in the temple, that gigantic symbol of the separation 
between God and man, that, that gulf that existed between God and man, that veil was torn supernaturally from top to bottom, opening the way to the most holy place, demonstrating that God and man have been reconciled back to each other in Christ Jesus. He is the ladder. He is the bridge. He is the way to life and peace. That's why Jesus will say later on in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the object of our faith. He is our hope. And so we must know Him and trust Him to be saved. Now, in light of that, if you don't know Christ if you've never put your faith in Christ, if you have, have never trusted Him, or, or maybe at one point in your life you said, I've made a profession of faith, but I didn't realize, really know who He was. I just you know, got emotional and I just prayed some prayer, but I don't even know who Jesus is. Today I call upon you to come to Christ and throw yourself on His mercy and His grace. I call upon you to confess Him as Lord and Savior. I call upon you to acknowledge that He is the God who created all things, but He is also a man who came to be with us and to suffer for you and paid the price for your sins. I call upon you to repent and believe the gospel and be saved because today is the day of salvation. Believe the gospel and live. I beg you, acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and God. Next, if you are in Christ then grow in your knowledge of Him. He's the center point of your whole life. He is the center of the gospel. He is the center of what draws you to God. He is your life. As we sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Grow in your understanding of Him. Acknowledge that He is God and man. Learn His attributes. Learn His character and draw near to Him and study the Word. Read it, study it, meditate on it, think about it. And, and I also want to encourage you is to, if you want, ask me, I'll give you a copy of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. It is a rich, it is a rich exposition of what we believe. And it has a couple of sections that really expand what we need to really know and understand about who Christ is. It is a helpful guide. It will help you to draw nearer to Him. And finally, be on mission and share the hope of Christ with the world, even with those that who think that they're in Christ. We are surrounded by people who have, have as Paul Washer says, been, been inoculated against the gospel because they they think that they might actually know Him, that they might have actually made a profession of faith, right? Or that they are believing because, you know, in a false gospel that we must continually preach and proclaim and share that hope so that they would repent and believe. You are the instrument that God has created to go out into the world and connect with the people that are in the sphere of your influence. You were saved for that reason and He has placed that hope in you you don't have to be a brilliant apologist. You don't have to be a fantastic evangelist. You don't even have to be very good with words. You just need to point people to the scriptures and point them to Jesus. Right? Be used of the Lord. Right? Because guess what? He is the hope that we have. The hope that we long for. We live in America, yes, and there are things that are wrong. Right? But our hope isn't that the next election the right guy will win. Because guess what? There will be other problems. Right? Our hope isn't the fact that, that we won't go to war, because guess what? There'll be other wars, right? Our hope isn't the fact that, that somehow that we're going to be fed, because guess what? Tomorrow we'll be hungry again. Our hope isn't temporal. Our hope is Jesus Christ. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to God, and that's the hope of the world. And by the way, throughout history, when nations and communities and families have been reconciled to God, we have seen then the world get better. You want to help the world get better? Proclaim the gospel to your friends and your family and be used of God that way. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. 
Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.